On this episode of The Jukebox, we sat down with Matt Riley, a former postdoc and visiting assistant professor at the Joukowsky Institute. We caught him on his recent return to the Institute for our State of the Field 2018 conference on archaeology and social justice. He's an assistant professor of anthropology, gender studies, and international studies at the City College of New York. As an historical archaeologist of the Atlantic world, he studies race formation processes, colonialism, and labor in the Caribbean and West Africa. He talked about making archaeology more locally significant for his students and what it's like to work in the Caribbean year after year. What did you want to be when you were a kid, and how did you first discover an interest in the past? Um, you know, I, I don't think I really had an interest in the past, so to speak, or at least framed in those terms when I was younger. Um, I grew up on Long Island, um, like you did, Carl, mm-hmm. um, and I remember, you know, as a kid going to all like you know field trips for school, Old Bethpage, for instance, mm-hmm. on Long Island. Um, there were sites associated with the indigenous populations, but it was always just kind of a school outing. There was never anything that was appealing to me or something that I ever thought could potentially be a career or anything that I wanted to pursue as a career. Um, in fact, I wanted to be a musician. And eventually when I was in school, I started to get more of a develop more of a keen interest in my own family's history. Um, my mom's father was from Ireland. And I started to learn a lot more about the Irish diaspora and the experience of the Irish in New York City and Long Island in the mid-19th and into the 20th centuries. I became really fascinated by the process of, you know, othering immigrant populations and then eventually gaining wider acceptance and celebration here in the U.S. And it really sparked a keen interest in thinking about how I might pursue that from alternative perspectives. Looking, I mean, historical archaeologists always say it, you know, kind of giving voice to the voiceless or alternative histories. And that was definitely something that appealed to me, looking at a particular experience of a huge number of people that you don't really get their lived experience through the historical record. So it's something that appealed to me from a familial sense in terms of my my own family's history, but then also something from my own kind of political vantage point as well. And so um, did you study archaeology in college? I did, um, but it wasn't until late. Um, so I was, like I said, I had, I had been going through school thinking I was going to be a musician, um, then realizing that if I ended up in a pit orchestra for the rest of my life, I probably would have had a nervous breakdown at some point. Um, I still remember like the definitive moment. I was playing in the Music Man, and it was just abysmal. I couldn't take it anymore. So at some point, I soon switched, and I took an intro to archaeology class. And if he ever listens to this, he'll probably, he'll probably remember when I started talking to him. But Steve Brighton at the University of Maryland, um, he worked on sites of the Irish diaspora around northern New Jersey and New York City, and he was starting something in the Baltimore area. And this was just something that was, you know, I was out of this world for me. Something I just didn't understand that you could really do. Um, I didn't understand the process itself. So learning kind of the more traditional notions of archaeology, you know, excavating in ancient Egypt or in Mesoamerica, I learned all that stuff. But then to also think we could do this with the more recent past and stuff that really connected with me as a person was something that was really revolutionary. So I took my first archaeology class probably in my sophomore or maybe junior year of undergraduate 
And then from there, it was just something that I knew I wanted to pursue ever since. Cool. A question I ask sometimes as well is, uh, but I think I might know the answer based on what you just said, is uh, if you hadn't gone into archaeology, what do you think you might be doing? Oh, God. I mean, I'd like to say it would be music, but I think I was just, just so disillusioned by the whole thing in the midst of college that I don't, I don't know if I would have done that. Um, I mean, it's a good question. I ended up, I, you know, I had a lot of service industry experience, but again, something I didn't want to ever pursue again after I'm sure most people will attest to that after doing that for a couple of months, you just don't want to go back to it or a couple of years, you don't want to go back to it. Um, but you know, it's a good question. I'm not exactly sure what I would be otherwise. You know, I just, I had a fortunate career path where I wasn't necessarily scrambling to come up with alternatives. So I was very kind of set in the trajectory that I was on. So it ended up working out, but Fortunately, I think that's a good thing, you know, for lucky that I didn't have to necessarily think of what could have been or what would have been. Cool. So you're here uh, at Brown visiting Mm -hmm. um, for a state of the field conference, um, but you were previously employed by the Joukowsky Institute. Uh, What was what was your uh, capacity here? Well, since this is on the record, this was the best experience of my entire life. No, it was so I, I was very fortunate to be here at Brown University. I was so I was here as a postdoctoral fellow from 2014 to 2016, and then I continued on for an extra year as a visiting assistant professor, half here at the Joukowsky Institute and then half at the Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice. So I had kind of a, a unique position here, especially at the Joukowsky Institute, as being one of the few people that actually worked in the New World. So I. I'm thankful for to uh, John Cherry for bringing me in uh, that way. I'm sure, I know I've been speaking with uh, Professor Felipe Rojas. He continually reminds me that you know no one, everyone was very curious as to why we hired some. They hired someone like me. So thank you, Felipe, for that one. Um, but no, it's been it was a wonderful experience and really opened my eyes to other worlds of archaeology that I just hadn't been acquainted with prior to my experience here at Brown. Uh, so it was an excellent experience in general. Just the three years that I spent here, so I'm very grateful for that. Right. And so now you're at the City College of New York. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I just started a new position. I'm in my second semester as an assistant professor uh, at the City College of New York. So City College is one of the many campuses, over 20 of them, of the City University of New York, so the CUNY system. And City College is um, their flagship campus. It's up in West Harlem. And so we have archaeologists throughout the CUNY system on all different campuses. And then we all work together as part of the Graduate Center faculty as well. So you're here for the State of the Field Conference, and State of the Field is something that the Joukowsky has done for years now, Um, but usually it takes on a geographical um, theme, like in 2016 it was the archaeology of Egypt, in 2014 there were two, one for the archaeology of Iberia and one for the archaeology of North Africa. But this year the theme is archaeology and social justice. Um, so, uh, what, what's the, what's the topic of your paper that you're going to be delivering? Well, the topic of my paper, the paper itself is called Archaeologies of Whiteness. Um, so it's incredibly broad, incredibly vague and so, and that's why I'm trying to keep it as mysterious as possible before I actually, uh, surprise everyone on Saturday morning. But in general, it, you know, it's a theme that I've been exploring for the past few years and something I want to develop in, in, 
bit more earnestly in the next few years, um, what I really started noticing was that, yes, there are all these issues of racism within academia more broadly, but what was particularly troubling when I was looking at the history of the field of archaeology is that we continue to venerate certain figures and certain histories and methodologies that are really quite problematic. And I saw one of the common themes that really united all of these problems was this investment in what I'm going to uh, talk about on Saturday it relates to W.E.B. Du Bois's notion of personal whiteness. And I can see this reflected in individual practicing archaeologists throughout the 19th and into the 20th centuries. So it's an inherent type of racism that manifests itself in the production of a certain kind of archaeological knowledge that we still see influencing and being detrimental to the field in the 21st century. So while we're going to be talking about social justice in the present and likely the future, one of the arguments I'm going to be presenting is if we don't start to critically think about the history of our discipline, emancipatory futures may not be possible until we fully start to unpack the inherent problematic natures of our discipline in the first place. So I'm going to start thinking more critically about some of the more famous archaeologists, the pioneering archaeologists in the field, and some of the things that we we often talk about to uh, herald their methodological rigor, but maybe we less so focus on their political stances or their social ideas that are inherently influenced by white supremacy, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll be talking specifically about someone like Flinders Petrie. So anyone who's familiar with archaeology will know the name, but what often gets overlooked is his support of the eugenics movement and his, his use of craniometrics and his stance on white supremacy. So mm -hmm. it becomes problematic where we choose to venerate one side of his history and in totally ignore the other that still plays a heavy role in how we think of the history of the field right so i asked you about uh the past and i asked you to trace your interest in the past maybe a better question for you knowing a little bit about you um is where your interest in the future came from and um i mean i know you um organized a conference here at brown um Two years ago, I guess. Sure. Yeah. On futurity. Mm -hmm. uh, what is futurity, and um, why is it something that you're interested in? Sure. Um, as you mentioned, I, I organized a conference here in 2015 called Archaeology and Futurity, and the impetus there, you know, I'll, I'll, my, I owe a great deal of thanks to Sue Alcock, who was then director of the Joukowsky Institute, who kind of gave me this freedom to organize a conference around a theme that was just of interest to me, and so I had been reading a lot about archaeologists thinking about the more complex and complicated relationship between the past and the present. And all this new literature about temporality and time had been coming out, and the ontological turn affected how we think about these neat linear notions of time, and we started to critique those different notions. So I became interested in that complex relationship between past and present, but I was kind of curious as to why the future had really been not necessarily left out entirely, but often took a back seat to the, the past and present. And I mean, it makes sense when you're dealing with a discipline like archaeology, but at the same time, there was also more and more literature talking about the urgency of this particular moment that we were dealing with in the 21st century. People are, uh, we're, we're dealing with environmental catastrophism, we're dealing with capitalism run amok, global violence, a migration crisis, all these pressing, pressing issues that clearly spoke to complications of the past and present, but threatened certain futures. And this is something that, I mean, goes well beyond an archaeological interest. It affects all of us as people. So what I was really interested in doing was bringing together great archaeologists who were thinking about time in interesting ways, but also people that had kind of more of an activist or um, socially conscious type of 
praxis in their own type of work. So I was really thrilled to hear from people that were taking these concerns seriously. So when I say futurity, I'm not just talking about what is the future of of archaeology? What's the future of heritage sites? I mean, how do people think about the future? How do we think about our future in the here and now? How did people 200 years ago envision their own futures? So futurity as a concept isn't necessarily dealing with it as a temporal framework, but something that affects our everyday lives, just like it did people in the past. So that's really where the interest came from. And for me, it was recognizing a particularly problematic political moment that we're dealing with now. And you know, in 2015, when we had the conference, I don't think anyone would have predicted the moment that we'd be in now in 2018. But as we've been working to publish the proceedings from the conference itself, we've been seeing that those urgencies have only been heightened. It's even more of a crisis in terms of where we see ourselves as a global society moving forward. So it's something that's pressing for all of us that are concerned, that are contributing to this volume. So having learned about how you critically think about the past and your interest in the future also, and its um, intersection with today, all of them, uh, how do you teach the students that you have in your classroom about archaeology and the practice of archaeology when you're supposed to be teaching them how to be archaeologists, but you also have criticisms of the past and not definite answers on where to go? That's a really, really tough question, and one that I think probably every archaeologist will have a different answer for. Um, But it's a question that I grappled with last semester. So my first semester at City College, I was asked to teach the Introduction to Archaeology. And I had never done that before. Um, Here at Brown, you know, they they have that reputation for not having their intro type classes. So it was kind of a challenge to build a syllabus dealing with the very, you know, with very introductory framework for archaeology when I'm at the same time trying to be very critical of our discipline's past and think about the past and the present and future. So one of the first things I did in the classroom, day one, I told everyone to take out a piece of paper and answer the question, why does the past matter? And I had about 100 kids, and they all, they all, and they're not kids, I don't know why I said that, um, but they all wrote down their answers and submitted them, and I reviewed them after class. And you, you got similar responses but they were they were a little bit diverse a lot of them was a lot of them dealt with you know we need to learn from the past so we can avoid mistakes in the future we need to preserve the past for future generations so it always dealt with the significance of the past in the present and future so the next class that's kind of what i started with but yes as archaeologists we are concerned with learning more about the past but our job is not necessarily to present straightforward end-of-the-line answers to everything. We are not the be-all, end-all. We are sol- we are interpreters just like anybody else. Yes, we have a toolkit that makes it, make us more um, qualified to address certain issues and develops what potentially are the better answers in terms of best evidence available, but at the same time, we need to, pre- we need to approach the past with a critical eye to make sure that there's always room for improvement. And I think that's what makes it so critical that students recognize that we're not just here to present facts about the past. We're here to present a certain side of the past that's been presented archaeologically, and then think critically about what that means about that past being in our present and what it can then mean moving forward as a global society. So I think the students... And, you know, it's, it's a balance that you need to be careful with, especially in this political climate where, and of course, you know, um, alternative facts was the phrase that was, you know, became so famous after Kellyanne Conway said it. But it's something that we're all dealing with as academics where we're being critical of the knowledge we produce, but at the same time, that knowledge is really essential to start to counteract 
the political directions in which our country and our globe are really going. So where does that leave something like the archaeological science, a science that's imperfect and will always be imperfect? I think what that means is we have to have uh, you know, a particular science that we employ with a certain ethical or moral code, which, you know, I mean, you can maybe take it what doctors say, you know, medical doctors and just do no harm. And I think that's something that archaeology is becoming more and more aware of, that we're not just necessarily scientists here to answer questions, but to build certain community understandings about why the past matters in the first place. That might have been a long-winded, convoluted, all-over-the-place answer, but I think that just means that I'm not sure if I have a good answer for that question yet. No, that was good. So how do you balance being a researcher with being an educator? I think it's so easy for us to get lost in our own work. And I mean, when you're an academic, I think research, it's an inherently selfish discipline. I mean, you have to be focused on what you produce, what you publish, your own research. So it's hard, it's easy to lose sight of the educational aspect of things. And it's something that I always try to emphasize first and foremost, even especially in my new position. And one of the, the things that I bring to the classroom is that you know, what we might think our work is just so important in terms of what we're publishing and what we're presenting, what we're researching, the overwhelming majority of students that you get in the classroom are not going to go on to your own field. They're not going to be archaeologists in our case. And so I try to approach teaching as if, you know, what are they going to walk away from this class with? What's going to change the way that they think about the world around them? And it's not going to be the names and dates of emperors and empires from you know the Bronze Age or something. It's going to be about why this stuff matters in the present. And so I always try to implement... In, in, I always try to insert into the curriculum a local perspective as well. So when I was here at Brown and we taught the class about when I taught the class on pirates of the Caribbean, we talked about local piracy here in both Providence and Newport. How the the state itself was built on maritime trade and pirates were a part of that. So the Rhode Island that we see here in the 21st century was influenced by the, de the development of a mercantile economy that pirates were involved with. And then for New York, you know, in my new home now, it's it's just so easy to talk about the relevance of the past because it's all around us in such a huge, densely packed city. So I'm teaching a class now that deals with slavery, monuments, and memory and memorials. And that is all over the city. So a lot of it takes place outside the classroom. We go to different sites around the city and we ask who's being represented, what's being represented, what stories are being told, and what's being silenced. How many times in your life have you walked by this place and never given it a second thought? So while these students may not be archaeologists in, in the future, and I certainly understand why not, at least they can come away thinking differently about the world around them, think more critically. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges for educators now. We constantly push students to learn for a particular test or fulfill a certain requirement. But really what we're lacking is an education in critical thinking and critical thought. And that's what's most important in a particularly troubling political climate in the 21st century. Critical thought is what's going to move us forward as a society, not memorizing facts and facts and statistics. So I think that's what I always try to focus on when I'm teaching classes. Mm -hmm. Are there any shows that you watch or movies that you like that you think do a good job of representing the past? Perhaps even a periods that you specialize in. Gangs of New York, for instance. I did. I did. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember loving Gangs of New York when it first came out, aside from Leonardo DiCaprio's atrocious Irish accent throughout mm. the entirety of the film. Um, but And I still love Daniel Day-Lewis, but Gangs of New York was one of those movies that I, I, I still think, you know, and 
um, we might talk about some of my other work later, but it was one of those things where, you know, focusing so much on Irish Americans, it was one of those films that Irish Americans really clung on to as, you know, embracing their sense of Americanness and how much we struggled and we finally made it because we worked hard. And that was all well and good, but it, was, it also raised like problematic uh, sentiments in terms of thinking about my own, my own upbringing, and, um, you know, where, where people place their allegiances in terms of thinking about these histories in the present. So, not maybe not gangs in New York so much anymore. I'm trying to think what I saw recently. I saw oh I watched um, that western with Jeff Daniels, Godless. Mm-hmm. It was on Netflix. I thought that one was really interesting because it raised a lot of interest. It was an interesting perspective, an interesting take on westerns that you don't usually see. So, for instance, they represented Buffalo Soldiers, and Buffalo Soldiers, even you know the black experience in the West is usually completely absent. When people when westerns are made historically that's been the way that it is there's also you know there and even the people of color that are represented they have storylines that you don't you didn't typically get from older westerns so indigenous populations are represented you have the buffalo soldiers you also have a town populated and enti- populated entirely by women after most of the men die in a mining accident so it was really interesting in terms of seeing that alternative viewpoint for a western and it was also rooted the main villain jeff daniels his backstory is that he was one of the few survivors of the mountain, Me- one of the few survivors of the Mountain Meadow Massacre, which was um, an exp- I think it was 1857 when a group of people from the Ozarks in Arkansas actually went east in a wagon caravan and were ambushed, and it was believed to have been indigenous peoples, but eventually it turned out that it was the Mormons in Utah who had conducted the massacre. And this was a subject of research by one of my mentors, Shannon Novak. So in watching it, I got really, really excited. And in fact, I still owe her an email. I meant to ask her if she had seen the show. But it was something that really piqued my interest in terms of a representation of the past that you don't typically see. I'm interested to know if there are any topics from the periods you study particular historical events or maybe just generally eras that you think you'd like to see portrayed in film or on tv hmm um i get you know i think i'm sure archaeologists will probably all be pretty selfish in answering this question because you want to see representations of the stuff that you focus on um i would like to see you know so i a, a lot of my work in the past has been about uh, working on the historical period in Barbados since English colonization in 1627. And I know, you know, Stars had a show a while back called Black Sails about mm-hmm. pirates. Is it I, over? I, I'm not sure if it is over. Okay. I, I Clearly, I don't keep up with this yeah. stuff. Uh, so, but, you know, I the show would say it wasn't poorly done or anything, but it focused on piracy in general. I'd like to see more in more of a show that dealt with the cosmopolitan nature of early colonial settlements i think it's just a a time that's so poorly understood in the general public that it'd be interesting to see you know a representation that deals with the messiness of early colonial encounters here in the americas so I, i think that's one particularly interesting facet and then i'm starting a new project right now in west africa in liberia and something that, you know, as I'm just starting this project, I'm only getting into the historical literature now, and I'm just so fascinated by the process of colonization in, uh, in Liberia itself. You know, we're dealing with the colonization episode in 1822 where African Americans are settling in West Africa, 
and it was notoriously contentious relationships between native Liberians and formerly enslaved African Americans. So a representation of, you know, now, thankfully, with the help of Black Panther, I think there is going to be a much bigger market for telling these types of stories that hadn't necessarily been there in the past. So I'm hoping that we can deal with some of these more difficult types of histories and see how what it can teach the general public about how to deal with problematic histories in the present. Mm -hmm. So what song did you pick? So I chose The Replacements classic song, Can't Hardly Wait. And what relevance does this have to your archaeological work or career? Well, part of it deals with the fact... So recently I've been listening to a lot of the replacements. Uh, a lot of their stuff is being remastered, and it's really excellent stuff. So on top of that, I was also listening to, it recent, listening to one of their albums recently as I was making plans for my Barbados field season. And one of their most famous songs is uh, I Can't Hardly Wait, which also became the title of the movie in the, the mid-'90s. Mm -hmm. um, but the song itself came on, and it made me realize just how excited I get while I'm making plans to go to the field. And it was also a beautiful, strangely beautiful day in in February. So it made me think about being in the Caribbean and the song certainly encapsulates that in a couple of different ways. And not to mention, you, you can't go wrong listening to the replacements. <laughs> awesome. Um, what is it about the places you work that draws you to them? Man, for Barbados, that's so easy. Uh, anyone who's been to Barbados will answer that one in a second. Um, I mean, I so I had never worked in the Caribbean before. So, and actually I can preface that by saying my first field school was in Ireland. So based on what we were talking about earlier, you know, I'd always maintained this interest in Ireland where a lot of my family was from. So my first field school was in the Wicklow Mountains, just south of County Dublin. And it was an unbelievable place to gain excavation experience. It was absolutely beautiful. Topography was gorgeous. We had a view of the bay just outside of Dublin. So I absolutely fell in love with the landscape itself. Archaeology was awful. And I, I, he'll probably never hear this ever, but John O'Neill was the director and he sympathized too because we didn't find a single artifact for four weeks. Found absolutely nothing. So he felt terrible. Uh, we were all kind of, you know, we were pissed off at that point too, having not found anything. But, you know, every, when you look up, you just couldn't help but be happy with where you were. And it was at that point that I really realized that this was something I really wanted to pursue. I absolutely loved doing it, even if we found absolutely nothing. So after undergraduate, I kept pursuing stuff to deal with, you know, the Irish diaspora. And eventually it led me, someone had suggested, you know, have you heard about the Irish in the Caribbean? And I had never heard this history. I remember I had been to the Caribbean once, I think it was in the Bahamas for a family vacation or something like that, knew nothing about the Caribbean. And then with more and more reading, I became completely enamored with this story about the Irish that were sent to the, to Barbados. So after my first trip down there when I was in graduate school, I absolutely fell in love with the place. It's an island that's accessible. It's absolutely beautiful. The people are incredible. I had, you know, I can, I, I consider it my second home. And it's a place that, you know, all the beaches are public. The food is outstanding. And the cultural, I mean, the cultural energy there is just something that's un, unrivaled, I think, throughout, you know, around the globe. It's a place that I can see myself working for the rest of my life for sure. And I'm happy that I've developed relationships with local institutions and local people that'll make that possible. So we work really closely with the Barbados Museum and Natu uh, Barbados Museum and Historical Society. 
Their deputy director, Kevin Farmer, is a trained archaeologist, and we work closely on a number of different projects. So when you develop those types of relationships, it really makes working in a place like that just an absolute pleasure. I mean, besides of all the allure of a Caribbean destination, it just has so much more in terms of what it has to offer in terms of its cultural history and you know where it stands as a, a you know an emerging nation. It's only been a country for just over 50 years, and I think it recognizes that its own heritage is part of its mission going forward mm. so that makes it an ex- makes it an exciting place to work for an archaeologist and so this new project in liberia does that mean that you're going to be spending less time in the caribbean i don't think so and i think i'm going to be really careful about that because i want to make sure i stay in, in the caribbean for sure but the new project in liberia has its own has its own advantages that something i just couldn't experience in the caribbean i mean so L- liberia has a really fraught and um, disastrous history in the last you know, several decades, plagued by civil wars and really uh, extreme violence. And so we're dealing with a context where they haven't had the opportunity to really develop heritage management programs. There is not necessarily that interest in the past or that, that you know, the framework for archaeological work that you have in neighboring countries like Ghana, Nigeria, and Senegal. So it's an, a different opportunity in the sense that we can build something from the ground up. So the National Museum is eager to work with us. Um, they have, when I visited this past summer, they were just trying to get things off the ground and reopen after being closed for several years. So they need to rebuild uh, collections. They need to rebuild displays. They need to get a framework for how heritage might work moving forward. And so to be part of something like that, when it's just emerging and what could be something that can blossom into something special in the next few years, that's an opportunity that you don't usually get as an archaeologist. So really exciting opportunities there as well. And I'm thrilled with the people that I'll be collaborating with. So fieldwork in Barbados has like been a huge part of your research. And so do you have any really funny stories or crazy stories that happened while you were there? Uh, there are definitely a lot of different... I mean, Barbados is a notorious rum-consuming island, as are a lot of different uh, Caribbean islands. But aside from the rum drinking and karaoke and the late night swimming, uh, one story does come to mind, and I'm going to be purposely vague in a number of senses here, but we did have one student who was interested in partaking in other elements of Caribbean culture, uh, or what Caribbean culture is well known, stereotypically well-known for. Um, and he got into a little trouble with some local guys who uh, weren't pleased with their lack of payment. Uh, so eventually we got to we got into some trouble. He got into some trouble. Um, it ended up there was a stun gun involved. Um, police oh had to be alerted. There were um, the student was of course. Uh, asked to leave the program, but it ended up, uh, I ended up having to participate in um, making restitution to those that were, um, that needed to be paid back. So it's some interesting stories, positions that you don't necessarily see yourself being in. And I, again, I'm being purposely vague here, but if you ever see me at a bar at a conference, I'm happy to tell you the full story. Uh, (laughs) For the low cost of just one beer, I'm happy to tell you the full story of that one. Woof. So does that mean that you're going to not take undergrads on trips anymore? <laughs> oh, absolutely not. Undergrads are always coming. I mean, that there wouldn't be any entertainment if it wasn't for undergrads being on site. So, of course, undergrads should be coming. They need to participate in this type of research and, and experiencing the local culture. And I mean that in all the possible ways. I mean, Barbados is also known for um, crop over the first Monday in August every year. And if, uh, if, if you've seen Rihanna when she goes home to Barbados to celebrate, you know what, uh, what, can, what that can entail. So it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so if you were in a bar full of every archaeologist you know, 
who would you run up to first to have a conversation with? Well, I think priority there has to go to the people that I came up with, people I went through grad school with who are in my generation. So the people that I, you can usually find me with at the bar, at conferences, uh, Sean Reed, who I spent time in West Africa with, who always comes with me to Barbados, uh, Diane Wallman at the University of South Florida. So not huge names as of yet, but they will be, so you'll, you'll see them at some point soon. Um, other folks that are always good to have a beer with, um, let's see, Francois Richard, probably one of the nicest guys you'll come across. Um, and Francois, I think you owe me from the last time we were in Minnesota, if you're listening to this one. Um, who else? Shannon Dottie, one of my favorites. Um, and I miss New Orleans this past winter, so I apologize for that one. Uh, and then recently I had a good time with Jason DeLeon in Minnesota as well. Always a good, a good drinking partner. Oh, I also remember when I was in grad school, one of the very first times a group of grad students went out with a faculty member. Steve Murzowski, you definitely don't remember this, but you bought an entire round for a group of like 10 graduate students, and I will never forget that. Certainly something that I will be passing down uh, once I get the <laughs> financial stability to do so. But I'm very grateful for that, and it was definitely a great thing to do. So thank you very much, Steve, for that one. I appreciate it. That's awesome. Perfect. I think you might offend some of uh, your brown colleagues. Yeah, I you don't know. want to hang with any of them. <laughs> and, and of course, at some point there in the night, there will be a bourbon to be drank with John Cherry. I can't wait!